Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Here is Dr. Michael Rogers, Pastor Emeritus. As I go to our text tonight, I have to confess uh, to you perhaps a sin of mine. I always was deeply envious of the Sunday evening preachers. I would preach twice in the morning, teach a Sunday school class, and end up completely wiped out on the couch all afternoon. And I was always under the Sunday morning stress that you had to get out at a certain time. Otherwise, flashes and sparks of, hey, preacher, time to cut it, would start to uh, move through the congregation, and I was always aware of that. And then along came the Sunday evening preachers and fewer service elements. Read a nice long text, preach 40 minutes. I observed this for years and years, and I was always jealous. So I think I've got 40 minutes. We're going to see. If I'm still going at 9 o'clock, you can walk out. How's that for a deal? I'm going to read the entire chapter of 1 Samuel 24. It's my understanding that there's been a series begun. I have to confess I haven't heard them. Been around different places, worshiping other places, and having other connections going on in my retirement. But it's been a hit-and-miss series. You may not even remember when you heard a Sunday evening message last on 1 Samuel because of various things happening. Snow nights, ordinations, uh, different things going on. So we're trying to pick up where the other men began, and they're going to carry it farther forward. But I was asked to deal with a text in the life of David the the English title on the chapter in my Bible, probably yours too, says David spares Saul's life. We forget that before he was king of Israel, David was a fugitive for almost all the years of his 20s. Years of your young strength when you're just finding out who you are in the world and beginning to use the talents God has given. David was a fugitive. I, I used to think of him in these chapters as somewhat like Robin Hood, the legend of Robin Hood with his men in the Sherwood Forest and hiding from the, the uh, false King John while King Richard was off at the Crusades. I was like Robin Hood. And uh, that's really a bit what he was like. A lot of people came to him and went with him who were against the evils of the king because Saul was not a righteous man, even though he was the appointed king. So here's David in the midst of these adventures, starting to get tired of running from Saul and hiding. And uh, he will get tired. He'll get exasperated before his time of fugitive flight comes to an end. And God did, as you well know, bring David to the throne of Israel because it had been prophesied by Samuel that that would happen. And it was a true prophecy that God brought about in his timing. Listen as I read from... 1 Samuel, chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men 
in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of that cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. You shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut a corner of the robe of the king who was Saul. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not put my hand against the Lord, uh, my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, although you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And as the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue after a, a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, this is, your, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of God. Father, as we seek to 
get our minds and our understanding beneath and around this passage with your enlightenment. We pray that your Holy Spirit would show us applications of it to our lives here today. And may we walk in obedience to your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. Some of you might possibly have known the name of John Perkins, now with the Lord. John Perkins was an African-American man who came from a poor background in the Deep South. And after conversion to Christ as an adult, he became pastor and founder of a very well-known ministry. It was called Calvary Ministries, based in Mendenhall, Mississippi. Back in 1970, a van full of several black college students were working for civil rights in Mississippi, and they were pulled over by police and arrested. Perkins got a phone call and hurried his way to the jail in Brandon, Mississippi, to post bail for them, knowing that their parents and other donors would would happily meet those costs. But instead of being able to post bail and leave the jail with the students right away, Perkins himself was arrested without charge and savagely beaten by police. He was so badly hurt by clubs and kicks to his head that friends thought he would surely die in the next few days, but he did not. Something inside of John Perkins, though, did die as he testified, laying bleeding on a concrete jail floor, what died was his hatred and desire for revenge against these racist policemen who beat him so badly. John Perkins later wrote these words. He said, I remember the twisted faces of those policemen. They, They seemed like demons out of their senses with rage but I couldn't hate them back. And I could only pity them. And I realized there on that cold floor, my face laying in my own blood, that I wanted to live out the true gospel of Jesus, which can heal even people like this. Of course, we should know that in Matthew 5, Jesus himself said, I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. And we wonder if the Savior ever commanded anything harder than that. It's one thing to say, oh, noble words. But when you've been beat up and you're hurting badly, they're hard words to obey for all the thoughts that go through your mind. But what Jesus asked for is not something that comes naturally. But nevertheless, it is pointing us to the motivation of grace because we are God's new creations and he looks for us to live that way. A noble example of how to take the upper hand with an enemy without taking vengeance is here before us in 1 Samuel 24. You may remember that a few chapters before this earlier in the book, Israel decided they wanted a king. All the nations around them had kings. A king was a proud thing you could boast about. He could ride at the head of a parade or give you a good 
image if you're a Philistine or some other nation that wants to display your leadership. You can carry him around on a golden chair if you wish or invent banners for him. Kings make you look good, they thought. And they said, we want to be like everyone else that has a king. Well, God's idea was that they wouldn't be like everyone else. He wanted them to be absolutely distinctive people who would stand out because they were not like everyone else. That they would be people trusting in God and putting their hope in him. But he gave them a king. God said, I'll let them have what they want and see how that goes. And so they had Saul who did some noble things, but then rather quickly got carried away with his ego and his own plans and started deciding, well, I can also be the high priest of the land and offer sacrifices. That was his biggest misstep. God had not given him that authority. And he also had as a king in his court, a young man who sang and played the lyre and gave him much peace and pleasure. But Saul became enraged, you remember, when Samuel the prophet told that David, that young singer, would be the next king and turned upon David, even though Jonathan, son of Saul, was David's best friend. Well, there was this role reversal here. Suddenly, instead of Saul uh, being in a position to kill David, David was momentarily in a position to kill Saul. Makes us chuckle a little bit as we read Saul's reason for entering the cave. The English Standard Version is very decor, has real decorum in saying he went to relieve himself. I believe the King James says he went there to cover his feet. What would happen with his robe when he was relieving himself? Well, it, it seems pretty natural to think that Saul also enjoyed the cool of that cave and probably sat down with it being boiling hot outside. His troops were out in the sun. But uh, he thought, I'm a king. I get to rest a bit. Let me just sit down here and maybe have a little nap and enjoy the cool of this cavern. And there are known to be a number of rather large limestone caverns in that area near the Dead Sea called En Gedi. So here he is. And you know, here are David's people bunched up in rocks, hidden from Saul's was probably still getting his eyes used to not being out in the bright sun, but David's men had been inside longer and could see that there near the mouth of the cave was David's enemy, Saul. And they knew the situation between the two men. And they said, David, this is from the Lord. They had to whisper it. The Lord has given your enemy into your hand. Do you want to do it? We'll do it if you want. David, we don't have his words recorded, but he, he took it on himself, crept very quietly upon Saul. And you heard what it was that he did while Saul probably was dozing a bit and not realizing exactly what was happening. He cut a corner off the king's robe and then quietly got back with his men. I'd like you to think tonight in terms of the words radical reverence for God. Because I think that's what David demonstrates here in several different ways. And each of my three points have that word, those words, radical reverence 
for God. David wasn't just exercising a halfway reverence or, yes, I took a vow that I wouldn't touch God's anointed, but I can't pass up an opportunity like this. David's reverence was a radical reverence, and he refused to compromise and gain the throne of Israel through some cheap, murderous way. I think radical reverence meant several things that have applications to us as well as to David. Radical reverence for God means, first of all, I must not force the timing of his will. I must not force the timing of his will. David's men said they knew God's will. Oh, this is it. The Lord has done this, David. Strike quick. The Lord wants you to kill him and get this over with. Well, the text seems to tell us it would be a mistake for any believer to assume that the best way to achieve the will of God is to seize each fortunate circumstance that comes your way, no matter what it is. Not all worldly opportunities have God's green light of, per, of permission attached to them. You might have a situation open before you from God to do something that seems good for yourself or a family member, to perhaps advance on a different job opportunity, to take a step that spiritually would change you, your or your family's circumstances. But stop and think whether all worldly opportunities have God's green light of permission or not. We've all got a lot of snow piled up around. This is a familiar thing for Carol and myself where we came from. The delightful thing for me in retirement is I don't have to pile it up. I just watch somebody else do it. But what say if I was to go outside after one of these recent snowstorms and find somehow sticking out of the drift where the little bobcat piled the snow along my sidewalk, uh, the corner of a briefcase. And I said, oh, look at that. Someone's lost their briefcase, and now it's almost all covered with snow. And I re went out and recovered the briefcase and opened it up. Wow! Inside is $20,000 in bundled cash and someone's business card telling me who this briefcase with $20,000 in it belongs to. That is an occasion when I might know that not all worldly opportunities have God's green light of permission, is it not? I would be obliged as an honorable person, let alone a child of God, to contact that individual whose business card was in there. It's not my money. I can't say, wow, this is a great windfall. I'm sorry somebody lost their briefcase, but, you know, losers are losers and winners are winners. This temptation to David to lift his dagger against King Saul was really a lot like the way Jesus was tempted in the wilderness in three of the four Gospels. As we're told that Satan promised him all worldly power and vast kingdoms and so on, if only he'd fall down and worship Satan. Well, the Lord knew that had to be refused. It was so obvious. Maybe more obvious than what we see in 1 Samuel 24 because the alternative that Jesus knew once he forsook Satan's deal was a cross. It was his death. Now, it's always easy for us to grab an enticing opportunity that comes along. It's hard 
to wait in prayer and searching to see whether God indeed has stamped something for us as his way for us to go. I think of Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. It says, stand still and await the salvation of the Lord. How do you wait for the Lord? You just stand still and do nothing? I think the assumption is that you pray, that you search the scriptures, that you perhaps contact those who are good spiritual leaders whose lives appear to be in order and blessed by God. And you stand still until you're quite sure that God, by his word and spirit, through those channels, is saying, all right, go. This is of me. We look for a natural unfolding of events where a principle of scripture is not being violated that adds to the opportunity that is there. There's an older Bible commentary. I have his excellent commentary on 1 Samuel, a man named William Blakey. Don't know that he wrote anything else on Scripture, but he sure wrote a nice commentary on 1 Samuel. William Blakey said this, I quote, The heart that is profoundly impressed with the absolute goodness of God's arrangements cannot and dares not leap ahead of that will of God in any matter, great or small. How, he asked, can any good come by forcing arrangements out of the divine order. If we are really praying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, surely heaven holds no impatience for a speedier fulfillment of events beyond what God has ordained. That's just basically telling a Christian, wait, pray, and be sure. God's will must come about in God's way and in his timing. You know, once you're retired, you have somewhat a chance frequently. You have time on your hands, and you, you think back about things. You think about your career, what you've done, what you might have done differently. I'm not so proud, really, to admit to you that in the early years of my ministry, I fairly quickly came to an understanding that I had enough natural ability. This isn't very modest. I had enough natural ability to get myself noticed by churches that wanted to hire new pastors. And I began to understand the system by which it worked, by which pastor call committees were trying to fill what we call what's called a vacant pulpit, a church that doesn't have a pastor. And there were times, indeed, that I inserted myself deliberately by being noticed or knowing that I could be noticed. Subtly, of course, it never looked like I was really being overly ambitious. But subtly, I could say, oh, I heard from this committee. Maybe I had mentioned to a friend that I was interested in what that committee had to say. But I was able, without anyone blaming me of avarice or career greed as a minister, to say, oh, well, this must be of God, this call to a larger and more prestigious congregation. But at least on one occasion, I tasted the bitter gall of realizing that more favorable circumstances by themselves were not at all sufficient indicators of God's own will. And the Lord's seal of approval upon many career and life decisions comes only by prayer 
and taking to the cross our own proud ambitions. We must teach ourselves, lecture ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, get a hold of yourself and give yourself a good shaking to find out that we're not forcing the wheels of divine providence when they don't seem to be moving according to our own unwise timetables. I remember the experience, the real experience of a ruling elder I knew back in the 1980s. And this man was out of work for a time in the recession of the early 80s. And he was a skilled man, he had a lot to offer. But he was caught with downsizing in a company and out of work and looking hard for a place. And he, he certainly prayed and he certainly tried. I joined with him with prayer and so on. He told me how the Lord finally brought the thing to pass. He had been considering between two or three opportunities. At least two of them were still open. And one day he was just so filled with impatience that he picked up the phone. This is when you had a phone on the wall in your kitchen. Okay. Remember that? Anybody? Can anybody remember that? It really used to be that way. Uh, he picked up the phone, ready to punch the buttons for a personnel manager of the primary opportunity that he had really, really, really hoped would come his way. And when he picked it up, there was no dial tone. And he was puzzled, and he said, hello? And someone else said, hello? Guess who was calling? The personnel director of the company that he was trying to call had already registered his call at one end, and he offered the job. But my friend had to go a long way out and be strung out to the point of impatience before the Lord ordered things together. David in Psalm 37 wrote, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways or carry out wicked schemes. Evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Radical reverence for God means I must not force the detailed timing of his word and his will. Well, the second principle in our passage is a driving principle upon the whole thing. And I word that one this way. Radical reverence for God means I dare not attack any authority he places over me. In verses 6 and 11 of this passage, this chapter, David said, God forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. I'm sure David probably knew some colorful swear words that he could have called Saul, but he called him the Lord's anointed. Or God forbid that I should lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Did Saul act from evil motives? Yes. And if circumstances were reversed, would he have killed David with his own hand and dagger? Yes. But was Saul still the one king God had providentially set up to rule in Israel for all his faults and all his egomaniacal ways? Yes, he was still that. And as long as God had installed him in that place, David would not presume to harm this man. Now, we might view cutting the corner of Saul's robe as sort of a harmless little prank. 
I don't know that you fully understand without a little background what that meant. A king's robe was the clear symbol of his office. There are other places where people come and lay down, noblemen come and lay down their robes at the feet of a king in the Bible. That's saying, my kingdom is molded into yours. I belong to you. I will serve you. And if a king's robe is taken from him or torn in two, it is seen as a symbol of what is happening to his kingdom. If you take his robe or destroy his robe, you're destroying the king himself. And it's assault, an assault on God who has appointed that king. Immediately when David just, I don't know how big a piece he cut, it probably wasn't that big, eight by 10, what it was, I don't know. But when he just, he couldn't have damaged the robe too badly because Saul hadn't noticed it when he walked out of the, out of the cave until David called to him. And David is conscience-stricken, even having done that. That even that kind of a move was too bold on his part to go against the office of a king appointed by God. I once was told by a United States Marine in uniform. This is one of these guys who could have easily killed me if he wanted to with his bare hands. He said, in the Marines, you salute the office, not the man. That means maybe you don't love your drill sergeant so much, but you salute him. You respect him. You see him as put in charge of that branch of the Corps, and you obey him. I've always thought it was remarkable that in the various passages, and we could study what the New Testament says to Christians about observing and respecting the authorities established in their various governments. But the one that always carries me away is to know that the main ruler of the Mediterranean world, of the whole area, the top dog of the Mediterranean world in the time of Paul was Nero Caesar. Read about him sometime. Check him out online. He was the worst there was the absolute worst there was. And Paul told the Christians, God put him in his place. Perhaps to discipline you, perhaps to bring you into a humble situation. He's not a good man, he's not a Christian man, but God put him there. So what is a Christian to do when someone is in power legitimately that we see doing things that are altogether against the Word of God, exalting himself or herself, certainly not displaying Christian behavior or Christian character, what are we to do? Are we to go and murder that person to get rid of them? Absolutely not. Romans 13.1 says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Let's put it down to the nitty-gritty, folks. Do you think this has any relevance to us in the U.S. of A. tonight? I don't care about your politics or your party or who you voted for. But we all know we've had a man in office for four years who's done incredible things. Who's shown, on the one hand, as if he's a friend of Christians, and yet, on the other hand, his character is certainly not that described by someone inhabited by the Spirit of God. And now he's gone. And now we have another man called President. 
And we have our feelings there that are troublesome. A man who comes with agenda that is not a Christian agenda, that is absolutely against pro-life sentiments, absolutely in favor of every endeavor in the wrong direction about gender and sexuality that you could name. So whether whichever way you go, whatever president you think is better than the other one doesn't really matter. What does matter is God has put these people in authority. And God has opened the way for them to be elected. Now, you can, I'm not going into was the election stolen. That's not a subject for discussion here. I don't believe it was. The Westminster Confession of Faith states the principle in chapter 23, summarizing biblical principles. It says, quote, God, the Supreme King, has ordained the civil magistrate to be under him, but over the people, for his own glory and the public good. And it is the duty of citizens to pray for their magistrates, honor their persons, pay them tribute and other dues, and obey their lawful commands, being subject to their authority for conscience' sake. Now, I realize that is a complicated statement that needs unpacking and going over some details that arise. But it certainly says the main principle is that civil authority is given a certain trust to exercise by God. And if it violates that trust, that person or that government will eventually be judged by the God whose principles it has violated it. But it's not up to you or me to bring that judgment upon the individual. A lot we could say there. I'm going to leave that one because I want to go to the third principle Thirdly, 1 Samuel 24 teaches us that radical reverence for God allows me to face human opposition with the hot coals of God's love poured upon my opponent. I think some of you will recognize I'm talking about Romans 12, 18 and following. That crucial passage says this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone do not take revenge, my friends. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals upon his head. So do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Just after church this morning, I was scanning the Sunday paper, the Lancaster paper. You may know it usually contains more obituaries on uh, Sundays than most other days of the week. And I always scan just to make sure that someone I knew hasn't died, or sometimes even that's the way I first find out about someone at Westminster. No one I knew was in it today, but my eye stopped on a short paragraph about one individual. Sounded like a good old family patriarch, probably a, apparently a Mennonite man, a farmer. And this little story was told by his family to feature this man's character. It said that there was a time, apparently quite some long time ago, when he was at his farm and he observed out by the road, you may know, if any of you have ever been in agriculture, quite often farms have a gas tank out near the road where a company can come and pump gas into it because you need gas for your tractors and 
your farm machinery. My grandfather had this. And when my dad and I would go help with the, with the haying, dad would get a full tank of gas to go home with, which is a nice deal. Well, this, this farmer looked out and saw a car and some young men, and somehow, whether he forgot the lock or what happened, they got access to the tank and filled up their tank and then took off. Well, he knew a couple of these young men from the local area. So the farmer pursued and found their car and several of them kind of partying at a local ice cream hot dog type stand and drove in the parking lot and sidled over to the boys and he knew a couple of these boys by name and he said, hey fellas, how you doing? Talk with them, kind of kibitz it a little bit. And he said, hey, today the ice cream's on me. I'll buy ice cream for all of you. And he enjoyed eating ice cream with them and then as he was leaving, he said, and hey, if any of you ever need gasoline and can't afford it, stop by my farm, and I'll be glad to fill your tank. The gasoline was anonymously paid for. That's coals of fire heaped on your enemy's head, in a little way at least. I spoke earlier of John Perkins, the black man who forgave jailers who savagely beat him Forty years ago, I had the privilege of spending time with him and meeting him when he spoke at a conference. And then on that occasion, I wrote down something Perkins said when he told his autobiographical story. He said, The Spirit of God worked on me as I was laying on that jail cell bleeding. An image formed in my mind of Christ on his cross. And I realized Jesus certainly was falsely accused and arrested and beaten. His trial was a mockery. His enemies were consumed by hate, but he forgave them. And God would not let me escape from that vision and decide that I needed to live it out. Today on the streets of Lancaster, you can look again in the local paper or watch the local news, and you'll find practically every night, certainly every week at least, somebody provoked in the smallest way who pulls out their gun and takes a shot at the person who provoked them. And many in our society today live in a, right at the edge of anger, what you might call road rage anger, and it isn't always exercise with a car. That's normal for them. If you poke me the wrong way, I will poke you harder. Well, when a Christian is maligned or unjustly opposed, we are called to, first of all, stand still, Secondly, decide that we will occupy the higher ground, morally speaking, if possible. And if we lower ourselves to the low ground of our opponent, we have already lost any chance for witness or commendation by God that we might have. A powerful text. I love the book of First Peter. First and Second Peter are great New Testament books, little advertisement they're being taught in the New Sunday school quarter about to come up. 1 Peter 2.23 comes to mind as a challenge to us. It reads this way. When they hur hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The ability to do that under abusive treatment is an act of God in our lives because it certainly does not come naturally. 
It requires brave faith. It requires supernatural grace. And you say, well, I'm not Jesus. No. But if you're his disciple, you have his Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And we can claim what Philippians says about that. I can do everything through him who gives us strength. When David spared Saul's life at En Gedi, it was a work of divine grace. He was modeling David centuries before Jesus ever walked the earth. David, his ancestor, was modeling Christ. And in this dog-eat-dog, you-poke-me-and-I'll-poke-you world, people will recognize that kind of behavior and they'll marvel at it. They won't know how, what to make of it. I can't believe how that guy responded after I insulted him or hurt him or, or took the job away from him. And the shame felt by someone who unjustly wrongs you may or may not cause them to experience lasting repentance. That didn't happen with Saul, did it? Saul made all kinds of nice, oh, David, you're, you're wonderful. You're so much more righteous than me. I acknowledge you're going to be the, you would thought that it's over. Saul will just go and resign. No, he didn't resign. In a matter of weeks, he was still chasing David with a spear in his hand. And he had to meet his death on the battlefield before the kingdom would come to David. Soon after this, Saul the king was so abandoned by the Lord and spiraling downward into such spiritual depths that he consulted the witch of Endor as his best available royal counselor. Saul didn't gain anything by David's marvelous display of grace, nothing lasting at least. But we are not ultimately accountable for the spiritual state of those who oppose us. We're only accountable for ourselves and for acting in obedience and faith and hope that the grace of the Holy Spirit of Christ might be allowed to be glimpsed in a shining way out of our lives in the midst of our sin and our weaknesses. Your radical reverence for God that refuses to follow the impulses of the normal human appetite for vengeance will leave onlookers simply stunned. And perhaps they will witness for one of the only times in their whole lives a memorable moment because they will have seen Christ in you, the hope of glory. May it be. Amen. Father, we are very weak. We live in a world where people are angry, where venom pours out on the op-ed pages of our newspaper and our broadcasting industry, where politics have folks as far separated as they almost could possibly be. Somehow, oh God, will you teach us grace? Sponsor grace in us in these situations that the world might see and know and might just be tantalized and, and even shamed, as Saul was, to say why that person is righteous in a way I surely am not. May they see Christ in me, in each of us, the hope of glory. We pray for his sake and his honor and his praise. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. 
You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.